Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's, Rappaport's Reality, Reality Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes. That it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here and this season takes it to a whole new level old school legends modern power players and ex-lovers are all competing in cape town south africa for the prize of three hundred thousand dollars and we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast listen to mtv's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. This is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And today's Vault episode is the first part of a two-part series we did about the humble tomato. Wait, why did I say humble tomato? It's not humble. The beautiful, glorious, majestic tomato. Yes, this is uh, part one of our episode, uh, Tomato, Tomato. Uh, Or maybe it was Tomato, Tomato, or Tomato, (laughs) Tomato, or Tomato, Tomato. I'm not sure. Did you say Tomato, Tomato? Was that it? Tomato, (laughs) Tomato. Um, I love you too, Motto. You're only love a, you too, Motto. a yeah. day away. Uh, uh, but anyway, uh, th- these were fun. Uh, these were some some nice food-based uh, botanical explorations. And I believe we got to gush a lot about just how good a tomato can be. Hey, and they're in season again. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And Robert, I was going to start off today by saying that, of course, it's the most wonderful time of the year. But I think I'm actually already on record saying October is the most wonderful time of the year. (laughs) And of course, October is because that's, you know, monster madness. But monster season aside, I think tomato season is the second most wonderful time of the year. And we're right in it now. Tomato season is pretty wonderful. Um, we're 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 big tomato fans here in the house. Given the confines of uh, imposed by the the pandemic, we're actually growing more tomatoes at the house than ever before. Uh, and uh, yeah, it's been fabulous. We're big fans of um, panzanella, uh, which is a I think a Tuscan chopped salad originally, but it's like soaked or s- soaked stale or toasted bread. Uh, we throw in basil, and then of course the tomatoes. Uh, similarly, we really love a good. Uh, Caprice salad, uh, because yeah, a great tomato just elevates anything, in my opinion. You know, you can a great tomato. All you need is just a little salt and pepper, maybe a drizzle of olive oil, and you're good to go. A great tomato is, I think, in the same class where people think of like a great steak. It is just like a complete food in itself. 
that is so good, it, you know, it kind of makes people moan when they eat it. <laughs> and I, I definitely grew up thinking that I did not like tomatoes. I thought I hated tomatoes. I'd always pick them off of a sandwich if, if they were on there. But I realized later in life, the issue was just that I hated bad tomatoes. And almost every tomato you get in a, you know, in a subway or what I don't mean to single them out, but, you know, any sandwich shop, whatever, it's almost never going to be a good one. It's going to be kind of a white, mealy, tough, flavorless thing that does doesn't have all of the beautiful aromatic tomatoey compounds uh, that doesn't have that perfect juicy texture a, a ripe homegrown or, or uh, you know farmers market summer tomato that has never been refrigerated never had to be mm. shipped on a big truck any of that stuff it, it is a thing of beauty and if you've never experienced a tomato that way you don't know what you're missing yet yeah, absolutely. You just you're not going to get the same thing with a grocery store tomato, generally, unless you know they are actually service, uh, selling like local heirloom tomatoes. Uh, I'm a big fan of box meal kits. Uh, I'm a subscriber mm -hmm. to one of them right now. But you're just not gonna you're not gonna get a wonderful tomato uh, through the mail like that. It's got it's got to come from your own garden. It's got to come from a local um, garden. It uh, and when you get to dig into it, it it is like nothing else. It's just uh, miles above uh, the sort of mundane uh, canned tomato, grocery store tomato experience. Yeah, and I, I think one reason is uh, the, just the sheer mechanics of like shipping products, right? If you ever had a really good ripe summer tomato, as soon as you handle it, you know, like this would not survive the, the, like, the rough process of getting from a farm to the grocery store to my house. It's a delicate baby bird. It's a thing that, uh, <laughs> that, that you know, it's, it's barely going to survive the trip from the vine to your kitchen counter. Oh, yeah. And and I'm, again, speaking as a very amateur tomato grower here, but the ones we bring in from the backyard, like they, we have to like knock the bugs off of them. They're already oozing a little bit. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is a very delicate uh, uh, balance between uh, uh, the plate and the compost heap. You got to get there at just the right time. <laughs> But on the other hand, I'm also actually I, I'm a pretty big fan of canned tomatoes for cooked applications. If, if it's a tomato, you know, if you're making tomato sauce or something like that, a, a decent can of, of whole peeled tomatoes that you puree yourself mm -hmm. or mash to whatever consistency you want works just fine. I mean, you know, they're picked when they're ideal and, you know, they go ahead and can them. It's much better than trying to make a, say, a tomato sauce from tomatoes that are fresh in the off season. Yeah, yeah. It, it it ultimately depends. Like, what is the role of the tomato in the dish? Is 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 this a starring vehicle for a fresh tomato? If so, uh, nothing but a really good fresh tomato is going to work. Uh, but if it's something where the tomato is more of a, a supporting player, then uh, perhaps one of these other things will work. And then, of course, all, there's not just one tomato. Obviously, there's so many different types. Uh, for my own purposes, I find that when it's not tomato season, those little uh, like grape tomatoes are pretty oh, yeah. good if you have to get some at the store. Absolutely. I'm, I'm 100% in agreement. Cherry tomatoes, grape tomatoes are the much better option if you need fresh tomatoes in the off season. So, listeners, as you can probably tell, we are going to be talking about tomatoes, not for one episode, but for two whole episodes. And if you're thinking, well, the, the tomato is just so mundane, it's so everyday, this is going to be a, you know, two episodes of, of backyard, um, um, like, hokery here that I can just skip on Stuff to Blow Your Mind, uh, nothing could be further from the truth, because there is so much weirdness in these episodes. There's quackery, there's myth-making, there are tall tales— and there's also space colonization. Uh, yes, space colonization. It's going to cover uh, really like a, a broad um, area of stuff to blow your mind content, even though at the center of it is this fruit that has become just such a staple of most of our diets in one form or another. So maybe we should start off just by looking at the tomato plant as an organism. What what is this organism and how did we end up with the modern cultivated tomato? Yeah, this is a great, great uh, place to start because this is another one of those stories where if you don't think about it too closely, if you don't research it yourself, you just might think, oh, well, tomatoes have always been everywhere. <laughs> right. They have always been a part of our diet because it's, they're just so ubiquitous now. But this is not the case. 
Okay, so first of all, you've probably just heard us say the word fruit. Uh, This is one of those facts I think most people know at this point. You probably learned this before. But in biological terms, a tomato is a fruit rather than a vegetable. And part of this comes down to the different ways that we use the term fruits and vegetables in a sort of culinary or nutritional sense versus in a botanical sense. Um, Like we in a culinary or nutritional sense, we intuitively sort things into categories of fruits and vegetables, I think largely based based on sugar content and whether they're primarily used in sweet or savory preparations. So plants that are savory are vegetables, plants that are sweet are fruits. However, uh, even this is somewhat arbitrary as a cultural convention because there are ways in which these these types of groupings can vary widely from culture to culture. Uh, One example is avocados. Are avocados a sweet food or a savory food? I think for me and for most Americans – the answer overwhelmingly would be it's savory food. They go in guacamole, you pair them with lime and salt, you put them on toast, you put them in a burrito. But for millions of people in like South America and Asia, avocados are primarily a sweet food used more often in dessert dishes, which seems very strange to us. But I don't know if you think of it as kind of basically just a buttery substance, it starts mm-hmm. to click in place. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Uh, I always grew up thinking of, of it uh, certainly as something you add a little salt and pepper to, again, some olive oil to, and, and you have a great dish. But uh, uh, we're big fans of going to local uh, like bubble tea places uh, and Asian dessert places, and you will find like avocado smoothies being, uh, as a, as a you know, the standard item you encounter on menus. And I've tried it before, and it's, it's delicious. But yeah, you wouldn't you wouldn't necessarily think about it from a Western perspective of being the uh, the dessert item. Right. But either way, these culinary distinctions often just don't have a biological basis. In fact, other culinary vegetables, things we think of as vegetables in a cooking sense, are biologically fruits. Cucumbers, chili peppers, eggplants, all fruits. Uh, But to go even better, the tomato is not only fruit, it is technically a berry. Mm. And one thing that I think you could probably even intuit just looking at, say, you know, if you're growing a variety of heirloom tomato in your backyard and you see this monstrous fruit hanging off of a vine that you have to prop up on a stake or a cage or otherwise this gigantic fruit is just going to make it droop down on the ground. Uh, and it's, the, you know, it, it looks like a thing that should not be in a way. Mm-hmm, yeah. um, so you might be able to intuit that tomatoes have not always been this way. Like many of the modern fruits and vegetables we eat, it had to be adapted from a a naturally occurring fruit or vegetable that did not necessarily grow as large in the edible part. Um, And it appears that modern cultivated tomatoes, which have the scientific name Solanum lycopersicum, are descended from a wild berry that grew in northwestern South America, maybe around the area of Peru or a little farther north. And the research tracing these biological origins has been summarized in a few sources I looked at. Uh, For example, in the Oxford Companion to Food, which was edited by Alan Davidson, uh, they looked at studies by, for example, Sophie Coe in 1994 and other researchers over the years that found that the wild ancestor of the tomato was very likely uh, they, they identify a couple of species, one Lycopersicon seraciform, and then another one Solanum pimpinellifolium, uh, which is today known as the current tomato, not current as in timely, but current as in like the fruit, a current. And it's called this because in a way, these, these wild tomatoes, the uh, Solanum pimpinellifolium, sort of resemble currants. They're these tiny little berries, almost kind of current or blueberry sized. Yeah. So some of the examples I was reading was that if you went back to uh, you know, pre-Columbian Peru, you would encounter, if you knew where to look, you would find these wild growing, uh, essentially yellow berries that were the predecessor, the likely predecessor to the modern tomato. Yes. Now, exactly how it went from that wild berry to the cultivated varieties that people eat that that's still um, we know some things, but it's still a somewhat open question. Uh, there have been some genomic studies that I'll talk about in just a minute, but we know that such a thing as the cultivated tomato existed by the time the Spanish arrived in Mesoamerica. By that time, uh, the Aztec people or the Nahuatl speaking people were eating tomatoes that they grew as crops, and they were eating them in dishes often prepared in conjunction with chili peppers. 
But, uh, of course, we, we know that this wild ancestor of the tomato, this berry, grew in northwest South America. It was, you know, the, this wild vine. And so there's still a question of how exactly that wild fruit made its way up north to Mesoamerica in order to be cultivated as a food crop by the Aztecs. Yeah, there's already, even at this early stage in the history of, of the global tomato, it's kind of a botanical game of telephone. Right. Uh, so I was trying to look up what is some of the most recent scientific work on this. And there was a new study about the domestication history of the tomato that was published just this year, published in the journal Molecular Biology and Evolution uh, 2020 by uh, Razifard et al. And so what they present is a little complicated. I'm going to try to do the simplest version I can. Uh, so th the authors say that before their research, our best guess about the domestication history of the tomato went like this. So you had this wild berry in South America. It's growing up in the Andes, up in the, the northwest corner of South America. And this is Solanum pimpinellifolium. Uh, here again, this is the one we mentioned earlier. The fruits are going to be about the size of a blueberry. Then, in this older understanding, this was transformed into the semi-domesticated plant Solanum lycopersicum cerasiform, or SLC. Uh, but if you see SLC in tomato literature, don't confuse that with Salt Lake City. It means this species. And this would have happened within South America. These fruits would have been about the size of a cherry, so kind of similar to cherry tomatoes or grape tomatoes that you could buy at the store today. Obviously somewhat different, but similar somewhat in, in look and size. And then finally, this uh, middle species, the SLC, was transformed into the larger, fully domesticated Solanum lycopersicum variant lycopersicum. And this was the Aztec food crop that was developed into the tomatoes that, that people eat all around the world today. And uh, strange fact, lycopersicum, I think, Robert, you might have a note about this later, but it means literally wolf peach. Yes. Um, yeah. And it, yeah. That it's, this is interesting because this was a, uh, some sort of a, a fruit that was described by Galen, uh, who lived uh, 129 through 200 CE, uh, which obviously is well before tomatoes actually came to, uh, to, to, uh, to, to Europe. Uh, so obviously Galen was not describing a tomato, but this just, this description ends up getting wound up in the classification of tomatoes in the West later on. Yeah. Uh, but so anyway, the authors of this study from 2020 use population genomic methods to try to reconstruct a genomic map of the modern tomatoes domestication history. And they conclude, quote, a result suggests that the origin of SLC may predate domestication and that many traits considered typical of cultivated tomatoes arose in South American SLC, but were lost or diminished once these partially domesticated forms spread northward. These traits were then likely reselected in a convergent fashion in the common cultivated tomato prior to its expansion around the world. So a little complicated, but basically they're saying that this semi-domesticated breed of tomato that may have been used as a, as a not, not a cultivated crop, but a semi-domesticated food by some people in South America uh, it had some traits that arose naturally, and then those traits were reselected and emphasized by growers in Mesoamerica uh, before the tomato finally spread all over the world. Interesting. Now, we've already touched on the fact that the tomato isn't the only case of this. There, there's a whole thing about what you call breeds of plants and how to, <laughs> and how to know whether you're talking about the same fruit or plant when you're using different names throughout history. It can become very confusing. Um, but just uh, about the history of the word tomato itself, the English word tomato, of course, comes via the Spanish tomate, which was adapted from the original Nahuatl word tomatl. Now, I've seen a lot of sources claim that tomatl was simply the Nahuatl word for the fruit, for the tomato. But the entry in the Oxford Companion actually goes a little deeper. And this is kind of interesting, uh, again, about linguistic confusion. So apparently in the Nahuatl language, tomatl simply meant plump fruit. So to indicate the ancestor of our tomato, you had to add the prefix Z. So the word was Zetomodel. That was the ancestor of the tomato we have today. And this distinguished it from the husked ancestor to modern tomatillos, which the Aztecs mm. called Miltomodel. 
And then the Spanish ended up using the word tomate for both. Uh, tomatillo in Spanish that just means little tomato, though they are not actually large and small versions of the same fruit. They're totally different species. Yeah, but they, but they are related. Um, these, these are all in the nightshade family, and we'll get into to that um, uh, into that in a bit. But the authors of the Oxford Companion point out that this led to a bunch of confusion for Spanish chroniclers who just didn't always seem to understand which fruit was being talked about. Uh, And I have mentioned this before, but uh, they also point out that in Aztec cuisine, tomatoes were consistently linked with chili peppers. And I got to say, it's a good combination. Tomatoes and chili peppers are, are two fruits that go well together. Absolutely. But here, once we have uh, contact between the hemispheres, this opens up the doors of, uh, of, of spread of this plant all over the world, and eventually it does spread. Now, I have to say that the, the way that the tomato spreads uh, uh, through and around the world, is it both, is it, was it once alarming? Like, it's really, it's really a success story, but it's also not one of these uh, situations where you can say, oh, well, this individual brought the tomato to Europe, and then it was an enormous success, and here we are. Like, it's not that simple. And, uh, and, and we, we certainly encourage uh, people who are li- interested in this to seek out some of the books we're going to mention here in a bit, because they'll get into a lot more detail about this. It is, um, I guess you would say it is uh, there's a lot of uh, touch and go, uh, false starts, um, and uh, as we'll discuss a little bit too, there's some myth making involved and some uh, some legend uh, regarding just how the tomato takes off and what is standing in its way. I would also say the tomato has a somewhat complicated and murky. Uh, if it were a text, we would call it the reception history. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So we're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, we are going to dive into some of the issues of its spread uh, through Europe and then paradoxically like back into uh, North America. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Rob, as the, uh, the local host with allergies here, they sent you some of their nasal spray to treat your allergies. What was your experience like? Yeah, that's right. I always wrestle with the pollen a bit when it rolls in during the spring. So they sent me the little uh, nasal spray. I tried out the product and yeah, it sure did help me get on top of my symptoms for the day. And it's so fast acting, uh, it was already kicking in before I left the house. Astapro is a first-of-its-kind nasal allergy spray. It's the fastest 24-hour over-the-counter allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes, while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray. Astapro delivers full prescription-strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. Get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount so you can get Astapro and go today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. Astapro and go. Uses directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And, of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. 
this is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And guess what? So are we. Just in case you forgot, I'm Tori Deal. I'm a six-time finalist and a Challenge champion. And I'm Anissa Ferreira, and I've been gracing your screens for the last two decades. I am a veteran challenger and Challenge All-Star. And speaking of All-Stars, All-Stars 4 is finally here. I'm going to be honest. I literally thought this day was never going to come. Well, the Challenge Gods have answered our prayers, and we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, redemption seekers, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. Anyone can win, relationships matter, and only one all-star will claim the title of Challenge Champion. Listen to MTV's official Challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, we're back. So uh, we may have talked in the past, you and I, about doing a tomato episode, uh, doing something about the tomatoes. Tomatoes have definitely come up on the show before. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, uh, my wife uh, this summer had had specifically mentioned, she said, you guys should do tomato episode. You okay. should do it. You, you should you should really dive in there. And I think uh, something that uh, helped uh, encourage this is that we encountered a sign at a botanical garden that was describing tomatoes and it mentioned that in the past people thought they were poisonous. So I have to admit that that was like that was a real key area of interest for me going into this episode, getting into you know just dis- dis- discussing whether people ever actually considered the tomato to be poisonous and what does that mean? Because it it just seems ridiculous on the face of it, right? The tomato has conquered the planet. We know the tomato is not poisonous, and the idea of people being afraid to eat it because they think it is poisonous uh, is, it just seems completely loony. Well, and it's funny because even once you investigate it, I would say that this irony remains because yeah. you, uh, the, the irony remains because we are going to encounter people who are saying the tomato is poisonous, but they're not saying it at a time when nobody was eating tomatoes because everybody thought they were poisonous, they'd be like, well, some people eat them, but they're poisonous. Right. Yeah. You didn't have like single voices with a global uh, reach saying we do not eat tomatoes or no one should eat tomatoes because you have a lot of, um, uh, you know, a, a lot of division based on like who's talking about it, what country they're in, what, you know, what levels of society they're at, et cetera. And then on top of additional legends that pop up. Yeah. But but this basic idea that people specifically you'll see like Europeans or Americans used to be afraid to eat tomatoes because they thought they were poisonous. You see this everywhere. You see this again at botanical gardens. You see this popping up in um, news stories about the tomato. And it is often just presented as just a straight up Fact. Uh, but again, when I started looking into it, I became increasingly less sure because on one hand, yeah, it sounds too good to be true. And then you do encounter uh, these, um, these, these, these wrinkles in the description that really um, drive home that, okay, not everybody thought this uh, at the same time. Right. So again, we're not going to cover the entire history of the tomatoes um, influx into um, Europe and then its, um, its acceptance by European societies. But the first known European reference to tomatoes comes in 1544 from Italian herbalist uh, Pito uh, Andre uh, Mattioli. And he wrote of the mala aria, the golden apples, which he described as ripening from green to yellow. 
Now, he classified the tomato with the mandrake, which was, of course, part of this big nightshade family. And this is, of course, this is accurate. I mean, they are in this family. We consider the tomato to be a a nightshade along with uh, things like the eggplant. Um, But this is often held up as one aspect of the poisonous reputation that tomatoes gathered uh, in European society, with botanists signifying that they were a part of this family that contained things um, uh, uh, like deadly nightshade, uh, like uh, like the mandrake root, which of course has all these connotations with various uh, medicinal and sort of magical practices. But at the same time, Mattioli discussed how tomatoes were cooked and eaten at the time, <laughs> much in the same way as eggplants, which were another imported food, only this, this uh, the eggplants came from Asia. Um, and, and they were, again, part of the nightshade family. And this has to be this seems to be a major sticking point for a large portion of um, uh, of uh, the tomatoes European tradition uh, with it and the related eggplant not traveling all that well into new European cuisines or not all of them anyway, because of their association with mandrakes and poisons, hmm. uh, as well as I would imagine just sort of a, a general hesitation to take up new plants into a into a pre-existing culinary tradition. One, one really interesting example of this um, I was reading about uh, regards the 17th century um, uh, German garden. Uh, I was reading when the tomato was purely ornamental, considering New World foods in 17th century Berlin. And this was by Millie Taylor uh, Poleski, published in Transatlantic Trade and Global Cultural Transfers since 1492. This was published in 2019. So the author mentions that tomatoes were purely ornamental summer plants in most Berlin gardens in 1656. And this was due in large part to a German naturalist by the name of Johann uh, Sigismund Elschatz, um, <laughs> who highlighted its connections, first of all, to the vile eggplant, Terrible. Uh, which, uh, um, which was also present in the gardens of Berlin, but not consumed, just grown so you could look at it. Uh, but Taylor Polinski also points out that uh, Elschatz didn't argue that either of these plants was poisonous, only that they were unhealthy. Uh, and he also seems to mention with some disdain that Italians eat them and <laughs> Spaniards did too at the time. So um, the idea is that there was likely um, a large amount of anti-Catholic sentiment here as well. Like this is this is a plant. Yes, you can eat it. The Italians eat it. The Catholics eat it. But um, Protestant Germans should not eat it because it's bad for you. <laughs> Yeah, that seems to go along with some of the things I was reading. And, and this is interesting, too, because we see a similar trend, actually, if you look at potatoes, which are also part of the large nightshade family, uh, again, where a new food is destined, just destined for widespread popularity and ultimately is going to have a life-sustaining success. Um, you know, with the potato particularly, it ends up being embraced by um, lower levels of the, uh, the socioeconomic um, uh, ladder first. And those communities that take up the potato benefit from them, like nutritional uh, and, and, and dietarily. Um, and then, of course, ultimately, it, it just takes over. But initially, the, something like the potato as well is grown only for decoration uh, before it is ultimately embraced uh, by everybody. For decoration? Potato for decoration? Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I, could, I guess I could see it. I see it less with the, to, with the, with the potato. But certainly, tom- tomato is a bright plant. It is pleasing to look at, but it's impossible for for me to really imagine like a gar- walking into a garden where you have ripe tomatoes and eggplants and you're just going to stand back and say, oh, look at that. Isn't that isn't that beautiful? <laughs> isn't that nice? Mm-hmm. No, you need to harvest that stuff and make a ratatouille. Yeah. Now, one of the, the really uh, wonderful texts that we were both looking at for for this uh pair of episodes uh, is a book by Andrew F. Smith titled The Tomato in America, uh, which, again, if you if you're uh, tantalized by uh, our discussions in these episodes and you want more about the tomato, this is the book for you. I uh, highly recommend it. Uh, but Smith points out that some Renaissance uh, herbalists, uh, when they were considering the the, uh, the tomato, they, they looked at these other sources, one of which is uh, Galen and the idea of the, the wolf peach. And that's, again, why we have uh, uh, the scientific name that we have for the tomato. But also there were descriptions of um, of, of Glossium by uh, Pedanius Dio 
Dioscorides, who lived uh, 40 through 90 CE. And this was a, a Syrian herb that was so named because it was recommended as a treatment for eye ailments. Mm. Um, so that was another uh, sort of pre-existing classification that helped inform how we thought about tomatoes, uh, or certainly how um, naturalists and botanists thought about them at the time. Uh, but uh, neither of these uh, is the tomato, uh, just to be clear. But they do tie into some of the, um, the, the frequently mentioned um, associations that were made at the time with tomatoes. Now, to get into uh, some of the, the myth-making a little bit, here's another frequently mentioned uh, tale that I imagine a number of you have heard. And th- this is how it goes. Uh, this is the story. I'm not saying this is, this is correct. We'll get into that in a second. But the, the story goes that when the tomato originally found its way onto European plates, you had aristocrats who were like, oh, I'm going to try out this. This sounds great. And they started eating these tomatoes. But then they started becoming very sick. And they end up pronouncing the fruit to be poisonous. But it would turn out that the acid in the tomatoes was leaching lead out of the plates they were served on, which incidentally made poorer members of society um, less susceptible to the poison because they would be, be eating off of, say, wooden plates or earthenware plates. Now, whether or not this uh, claim is true, it is actually true, of course, that that acidic fruits and vegetables, when cooked in or eaten on certain types of uh, pots or pans or plates, can actually react with the material. One example is if you cook overly acidic foods, including tomato-based foods in, for example, aluminum cookware, mm-hmm. th- sometimes this isn't great. Like they can react with each other. The food can pick up a kind of nasty metallic taste from the aluminum. The acid can sort of damage the the surface of the aluminum. So, so there are reactions like that that can't happen. Right. And, and we have discussed lead making its way into food and lead poisoning in uh, at least a couple of episodes in the past. I know we did uh, Cupid's Leaden Arrow, which uh, discussed lead quite a bit. And then we also did one, one of our three or four dangerous foods episodes touched on lead poisoning. But anyway, this idea of tomatoes uh, sucking the lead out of your your, your plateware, uh, this ended up being circulated in the United States as well, um, with commentators highlighting the lead issue. And there were also concerns over the, the general effect of the acidity of the tomato on the stomach. Uh, with some saying, oh, well, the, you know, the, the acidity in the tomato is dangerous to the stomach. Others saying, no, no, it's really beneficial. Uh, another thing I've read, actually, I don't know if this overlaps with the lead issue or not, but the specific substance I saw mentioned was pewter uh, plates. Was the, yes. like that they would discolor when you put tomatoes on a pewter plate, it would allegedly discolor the plate. And this led to concerns. Yeah. Now, Andrew F. Smith does write that the acid content of tomatoes was a topic of concern in Europe and the United States for a while. Uh, The Paris Society for Horticulture published a paper warning about the possibility of leaching with metal plates, uh, including copper, recommending that you should use wooden and earthenware plates instead. Uh, but, but I looked into this a bit more reading uh, from a book titled Death by Petticoat, American History Myths Debunked by Mary Miley Theobald. And the author points out that in 1598, a British barber surgeon published a botanical book that claimed tomatoes were actually poisonous while also noting that the French and Italians did eat them. <laughs> so I, mean, I guess it was like these are dangerous to humans unless you're French or Italian somehow. I don't know. Um, apparently, this uh, the, the, this was this was no expert. Um, this uh, particular uh, barber surgeon, I guess it would be like the modern equivalent of, say, a, a, a like a YouTube based um, mm-hmm. dietary expert. I'm not positive, but I think that's referring to somebody who cited in another paper by Andrew F. Smith, not that book we're looking at, but a paper I'm going to cite in a bit. I think that is John Gerard, a barber Ooh, surgeon okay. and the superintendent of the gardens of the College of Physicians in Holborn. And Smith says of, uh, of of this barber surgeon guy that in addition to repeating the claims of others that the tomato was poisonous, he also made strange comments such as, quote, the temperature of the tomato was in the highest degree of coldness, uh, which he said uh, was left, quote, to every man's censure. Mm, what does that mean? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> well, I know about the censure. It just seems like, OK, yes, uh, disdain the tomato. <laughs> All right. Well, at any rate, um, Theobald um, of contends that, quote, this book set the state for the negative view of tomatoes among the English that lasted more than a century. However, by the end of the 1700s, tomatoes had overcome this bad press. 
Yeah, that seems in line with a lot of what I was reading as well, that it's not that everybody thought that tomatoes were poisonous, but that there were some prominent writers that had made or repeated these allegations that the tomato was in some way potentially poisonous or unhealthy, and that these misimpressions trickled down to some people in society, but not everybody. So some people were reading tomatoes, other people were saying, no, that's dangerous, don't do that. And over time, the non-dangerous faction grew in numbers. Yeah, I think, you know, it's easy to look back at history and assume that there would be sort of weirdly to think there would be some sort of consensus at the time about whether, you know, wrong or correct uh, about particular foods. But obviously, we just look around the world today and we see how um, our, our understanding of the nutritional values of various foods shifts with our understanding and also just sort of the popular idea of what we should be eating, what is good, what is tasty, what is stylish, and even what is healthy uh, shifts as well. Yeah, you're exactly right. And and there is a grain of truth here, at least in the fact that uh, that plants in the uh, Solanaceae family, including, you know, say potatoes, for instance, too, do sometimes in some parts of the plant have uh, do accumulate toxins that can be dangerous. For example, if you consume the leaves or something or even um, we've talked before about there there are ways that toxins can accumulate in potatoes if they're, say, left out for a long time. If you have a really mm-hmm. old potato, it can get a lot of solanaceae in it, which can lead to potato poisoning. Yeah, it turns green on the, the sunlit countertop, that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, yeah, Smith points out that, well, first of all, as far as um, uh, acidity goes, it's going to vary quite a, a bit across the varieties of tomato. But then uh, in terms of um, potentially dangerous alkaloids, those are going to be uh, mostly in the leaves and stem. That's where the highest concentrations are going to be in a tomato plant. And there have been cases where, uh, say, a child consumed a tea made from those leaves and it has uh, resulted in severe reactions. But as you can guess from the like billions of pounds or whatever of ketchup and other tomato products that people eat around the world every day, the tomato itself is is overwhelmingly safe to eat. There's just yeah, there's nothing to this. Right. And, and certainly any of these cases where we're discussing a place or a people or a community that um, was afraid of the tomato or did not eat the tomato or only grew it ornamentally, there was in all likelihood um, people or a place not too far away uh, where it was just a part of the, it had already become part of the culinary tradition. Right. So, yeah, you would have uh, English people or Germans that were not eating the, t- the tomato. But meanwhile, in Italy and Spain and France and Portugal, uh, they were already all in. I mean, it was already a food crop when Europeans first encountered it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Now, there's a really interesting paper I mentioned a minute ago by uh, also by Andrew F. Smith from from the 1990s that was about the history of how uh, perceptions of the tomato changed in the United States during the first half of the 19th century. And there are some some interesting reasons involved in that transition that, that Smith gets into. I think we're probably going to explore that paper in the second episode here, uh, but it's got a lot of fun quackery in it. So so yeah. hold on for that one. I'd say one of the uh, the stumbling blocks to understanding the idea of uh, the tomato as being as being received as poisonous or beneficial is that sometimes the best seeming examples, the best stories about uh, about this, uh, are actually just legends, or you know, are completely apocryphal. Uh, such as the this famous story that I imagine a lot of people have heard, uh, the apocryphal legend of Robert Gibbon Johnson. Uh, so there are multiple versions of this, and they concern a real-life individual named uh, Robert Gibbon Johnson, who lived 1771 through 1850, and he was a, a notable farmer and horticulturist in Salem, New Jersey. He was an actual tomato grower uh, and is sometimes credited with having introduced the crop into the area in 1820, and certainly they became a major crop uh, around that time in southern New Jersey, uh, but uh, this is, uh, was we'll discuss in a second, like this doesn't seem to be the case either. He didn't, didn't actually introduce the crop. But in this particular story, um, 
the idea is that he said he was defending the tomato and he announced, I will publicly eat a basket of tomatoes on the old Salem County courthouse steps. Uh, then this is the uh, 1820 uh, in order to demonstrate that they are not poisonous. And then and then the townsfolk burned him as a witch. <laughs> wrong Salem. Uh, but uh, but you no, know, the idea is that people were like, oh, he's going to eat a basket of tomatoes and die publicly. I've got to see that. So people gather to watch this spectacle. Uh, they come from far and wide, and then he eats the tomatoes and does not die. That's the story, and it makes for a great story, uh, but everyone seems to agree that this is just not true. Yeah. As uh, And Andrew F. Smith actually gets into this in the first few pages of the book, um, pointing out that there are some pretty good records from the time in Salem. And Johnson, being a prominent citizen, was mentioned quite a bit for his other activities and exploits. Uh, like he was also in the military and so forth. Like he was a major deal at the time. But there's nothing about him uh, introducing the tomato. There's nothing about him... Um, uh, you know, eating tomatoes is a matter of public spectacle to, to to prove that they're not poisonous. And it just seems like that would be written up uh, if he had done that. Like the, the papers were not shy about writing about about this guy at the time. Uh, anyway, Smith goes on to note that as far as the, the idea of him introducing the tomato, this is just one of some 500 different myths about tomato introduction in America. And that they often end up involving the, the great man trope in which someone, such as Thomas Jefferson, he's another individual that sometimes is uh, erroneously cited as being the introducer of tomatoes, uh, is responsible. But in reality, we don't know who is responsible you know, specifically for introducing the tomato. There is no actual uh, American King tomato to uh, credit. I do love the idea, though, that if this story were true, I mean, so imagine this guy sits out in front of the courthouse and eats a bushel basket of tomatoes. Like, I don't think that would kill him because they're not poisonous, but surely that would give him just like horrible diarrhea. <laughs> <laughs> what, you, you eat a basket of tomatoes with nothing else? <laughs> uh, yeah, maybe so. I don't know. Uh, supposedly, this whole incident has even been... Um, uh, recreated in various past documentaries, uh, but mm. I, I didn't get a chance to look them up and see how they presented it. Uh, if if because there are different versions of it, so maybe in some versions it's just like one tomato, uh, and in others it's a whole bushel. I don't know. So I've got another story like this about the supposed reputation of tomatoes as poisonous, and this is the rumor about the George Washington assassination attempt. Whoa. Okay, so one version of the story, as collected in the uh, Snopes article on this rumor, quote, I remember one of my junior high history teachers reading us a suicide note by George Washington's cook. The author of the note said that he could not forgive Washington's treason against the British and had therefore decided to poison him, then kill himself. The poison he used on Washington was a tomato. <laughs> That's a great story, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It, it's it's comedic. It generates laughter. And it ties into this this ridiculous idea that people uh, once thought that the tomato was harmful and, and exaggerates it to the point where it could be used as a lethal weapon. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, as great of a story as this is, this one is fiction in a literal sense. It comes from a story, a, a short story called The Murder of George Washington by Richard M. Gordon, which was published in Ellery Queen's Mystery Magazine in April 1959. I think the author is this guy, Richard Gordon, who was also a surgeon and uh, an, an anesthesiologist who, who wrote historical fiction under pen names. But anyway, in the story... Uh, this this cook wants to kill Washington because he's a British loyalist. And so he, he waits until Washington is, quote, afflicted with a cold in his head, which has seriously impaired his sense of taste. OK, so perfect opportunity, right? He's not going to be able to taste the poison that the cook adds to his stew, which comes in the form of, quote, the scarlet flesh of a fruit of a variety of the deadly nightshade. <laughs> And then after serving what he assumes to be the deadly poison, the cook writes a, a P.S. to his suicide note, quote, as a cook, I have a prejudice against dying by poison. I am too corpulent to hang. But by reason of my calling, I am expert with a carving knife. So it is alleged <laughs> that he, he takes his own life somehow with the aid of a carving knife. 
And then, of, of course, I think the reader is just left to assume that this guy's scheme does not work because the poison uh, does not work because it is a tomato. That's great. <laughs> but uh, no basis in history whatsoever. Yeah, it sounds like the author was merely having fun with some of these, ver- these very topics that we've been discussing here. All right. On that note, we're going to take one more break. But when we come back, we will discuss the killer tomato worm. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And, of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes. That it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And guess what? So are we. Just in case you forgot, I'm Tori Deal. I'm a six-time finalist and a Challenge champion. And I'm Anissa Ferrer, and I've been gracing your screens for the last two decades. I am a veteran challenger and Challenge All-Star. And speaking of All-Stars, All-Stars 4 is finally here. I'm going to be honest. I literally thought this day was never going to come. Well, the Challenge Gods have answered our prayers, and we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, redemption seekers, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. Anyone can win, relationships matter, and only one all-star will claim the title of challenge champion. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, then look no further than the Marketing School podcast hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast in the United States and number 15 on business in the United States. And it has amazing guests such as Alex Hormozzi, Layla Hormozzi, Cody Sanchez. We pull in these amazing interviews with other people that are not only great marketers, but actual operators. And the icing on the cake is Neil and myself were also operators as well. So we share learnings from the trenches. We share secrets that we otherwise wouldn't be sharing with other people. And we also share other advantages that will help you get ahead of your competition. So all you have to do is listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, we're back. Now, Robert, before we went to the break, did you say something about a killer tomato worm? Yes, uh, killer tomato worms, uh, which is another interesting area that combines like actual... um, 
actual, well, in this case, uh, entomological fact uh, with uh, a fair amount of um, myth-making here uh, and, and just, uh, uh, you know, superstition, I guess. So it, it is a fact of life that if you're going to raise some crops, uh, you're going to have to deal with other organisms that also want to eat said crops. Right. And uh, again, I, we've been growing some tomatoes in our own backyard here. So so we, we've gotten used to this. As Again, we're growing tomatoes. We also have some uh, volunteer summertime pumpkins uh, from our compost. We didn't know what they were going to be. Turns out they're useless pumpkins, uh, but they're still fun. <laughs> Are pumpkins useless? Well, most of these are those little ornamental pumpkins, uh-huh. you know, the kind uh, that yeah. you, you, you buy around um, uh, Halloween and you set out uh, for decoration or you put on the in a basket on the dining room table. Um, that's what's been growing in our backyard. But can and, you can, can you imagine a future culture that looks back mm-hmm. on us with the same disdain that we had for people who would have grown tomatoes and eggplants only as decorations. And they think that about us, about pumpkins. It's true. I may be completely off on this. I could be wasting these. Um, but it, it does remind me of a time when I was helping deliver for a, a CSA mm-hmm. uh, here in, uh, in our area. And, you know, so I would vote, we would volunteer and we would, we would get like a free basket of vegetables uh, in return for our service, but we would deliver baskets of fresh ve- vegetables to various households. And uh, there's a lot of good stuff in there. There's stuff like sunchokes that I, I don't think I'd ever had before. Mm. Um, but then we would also have a lot of squash. And one of them I particularly remember, they were acorn squash, which uh, can be quite delicious. And I delivered one week to this uh, household, and uh, then the next week when I came back, there were the acorn squash, uh, not served up inside in a dish, but on the porch as decorations. <laughs> and I was thinking, oh my God, those are so delicious, and you're just going to use them as porch decorations? Uh-huh. Well, did they carve a jack-o'-lantern face into them at least? No, no, just they just set them out there. Oh, <laughs> that's a bummer. Uh, but it's possible I'm doing the same thing with my summertime pumpkins. Um so I don't I do not know. Um, but at any rate, uh, growing all this stuff in the backyard, um, other organisms are interested. Various bugs make a go at it. The squirrels, I think, get a little bit bored and will eat like part of uh, something here and there. And then we've also even had a rabbit shown up uh, show up, which has been a lot of fun because you get to anytime you get to watch a rabbit in your own yard. Uh, that's kind of magical, at least for me. Yeah, they'll they'll gnaw on your fruits, but they bring bunny magic with them in return. Yeah, they're they're fun to watch. They're cute. Yeah. Um, but uh, but then there's but there's a different pest we're going to be talking about here, and um, and it's uh, it's quite interesting. According to Smith, there's no beating the large green tomato worm, an alarming pest that is three to four inches long, or can grow to three to four inches long, and it has this weird horn sticking uh, out of its back, kind of out of the the, the, the final portion uh, of its body. And uh, I've included a picture here for you to look at, uh, Joe. It's mm-hmm. it's really quite impressive. Right. It is generally not spiky. It just has one giant butt thorn. Yeah. That has kind of a, a crimson or scarlet color to it uh, as if it has already like stabbed a Muppet or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, anyway, it is. Uh, is So it's pretty impressive. It's closely related to the tobacco worm. So if you've seen one or the other, uh, you may have an idea what I'm talking about here. Smith points out that Ralph Waldo Emerson even bemoaned these, quote, uh, young entomologies uh, that were eating up his tomato plants. So uh, this particular these particular worms, they are the larval stage of the five spotted hawk moth. And it is, in fact, a different species from the tobacco hornworm. But they're closely related. And the confusing thing is that both organisms feed on a variety of species that include both tomato and tobacco leaves. Oh, interesting. But they got what different kind of specialties? Uh, yeah, or just one is in one is more associated with tomatoes, and one is more associated with tobacco. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, they'll, you know, either one will eat the leaves of both plants. Now, uh, will will the tomatoes, they strip your nerves screamingly raw? Yes, apparently so. <laughs> or at least that seems to have been the panic around them back in the uh, uh, certainly the, the mid nineteenth century. Uh, apparently, an eighteen forty five New York Farmers uh, Club report described them as quote positively shocking uh, to weak nerves. 
Well, I think there were a lot of weak nerves back then. <laughs> Smith uh, has a bit more on this. You just have to read in in, in the book, uh, but but he includes these uh, quotations where people were talking about how like the worm just ruins tomatoes for them forever. Like they're just like they're just too gross. I'm not even going into my tomato garden ever again. Oh, I see. You like you see the worm once, and it like turns you off of the entire fruit. Right. But on top of that, some even considered it to be poisonous as well, including such claims that the bite could cause instant death or that the spittle, the mere spittle from one of these creatures could kill a small child dead. Um, so it's, it's like it's not only is, is it like a foul creature to behold, but it befouls the entire tomato garden and makes it a dangerous place in which to venture. So is there any truth to this? What, where's this coming from? Uh, the thing is, apparently not. Uh, the idea ran rampant through the late 19th century till you had a, an Illinois-based entomologist by the name of Benjamin Walsh who pointed out, and apparently this made the papers and all, saying, like, look, this is, a har- this is harmless to humans. This is not going to kill you. This is it's, it's a pest, yes. It's maybe a little big. It's a little maybe alarming to look at, but it's not going to poison you. Uh, though, as Smith points out, you still you had publications uh, in um, uh, Illinois-based papers papers uh, pointing out Walsh's um, uh, uh, facts here. But then you had other columns where people were saying, oh, there was a girl that was killed by one of these tomato worms. So it took a while for this idea to really go away. Yeah. My roommate's cousin's friend died from a tomato hornworm. <laughs> now, I've got another poison tomato rabbit hole to run down here because I, I was trying to think, OK, well, what if you do want to poison somebody with a tomato uh, a la the you know the early European misunderstandings uh, or or the fictional account of George Washington's cook. I do have a possible candidate for you. Uh, it's not confirmed how lethal this tomato would be, but it's at least suspected with good reason. And that candidate is the tomaco. <laughs> now, weirdly, whereas the George Washington story takes a historically factual misunderstanding as the inspiration for fiction, this story takes a modern fiction as the inspiration for a fact. So there's an episode of The Simpsons that aired in 1999 called E-I-E-I Annoyed Grunt, as in E-I-E-I Doe. Oh. Uh, and in this episode, Homer... I guess he's trying his hand at farming and he attempts to farm tomatoes and tobacco plants, but he fertilizes his crops with plutonium from the nuclear power plant. Mm -hmm. And this produces a hybrid plant that is basically a tomato stuffed with tobacco, which tastes bad, but is highly addictive. I think Bart says it's so refreshingly addictive and he sells it as tobacco and everybody gets addicted to it. And then I think there's some calamity where, where all his crops are destroyed. Okay, I, I'd forgotten about this episode, but now that you've summarized it, I do remember it. Uh, but apparently reality caught up because I was reading a report in Wired from November of 2003 by Kristen Filipkowski, and it was about a man named Rob Bauer of Lake Oswego, Oregon. Now, Bauer, I believe he worked in wastewater management, and he had some scientific training, uh, and he remembered reading about a similar procedure when he had been in college, uh, when I think when he was in graduate school, and he decided to try to create such a plant in reality, which he did by grafting together a tomato plant and a tobacco plant. Apparently, he initially experimented with uh, with grafting in, in one direction, which was putting a tobacco plant on a tomato root, but the graft didn't take. And when he removed the wrapping that held them together, the plant kind of fell apart and died. But the inverse grafting procedure did work. He put a tomato plant on a tobacco root. And Bauer claims that this process was successful and the tomato plant with the tobacco roots actually bore fruit, though nobody ate the fruit because he suspected it was at least possible that one of these tomatoes could contain a lethal amount of nicotine. Oh, wow. <laughs> well, on one hand, that's alarming. But on the other hand, it's, I guess it's not completely surprising because tobacco is a part of this large nightshade family. Yeah, exactly. And that's probably why, yeah, why the grafting worked out. Uh, so but to be clear, I don't I couldn't find any evidence that it 
it was ever confirmed that the tomato itself would have been poisonous with the lethal amount of nicotine. But it seems like a reasonable thing to worry about, at least good reason enough not to eat the tomato. Uh, and Bauer, speaking to Wired, said, quote, I've got this one plant growing and it's blooming again. I accidentally left the tomato on the kitchen table and my wife yelled at me, get that thing out of the kitchen, you knucklehead, because it looks like a regular tomato. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, don't leave your secret poison tomatoes just laying around. Uh, but but as I mentioned earlier, Bauer was apparently not the first person to try this plant hybridization. He he mentioned that he had actually read about this when he was in college, I think in an article that was published in Scientific American in 1959 that described a similar procedure to what end. I'm not exactly sure. <laughs> Uh, I, I don't know what what you really gain by creating a tomato that possibly has nicotine in it. I mean, and that's probably ultimately the the reason you don't see a, a tremendous amount of effort going to this, right? I mean, like, what is the payoff? What's the incentive? Perhaps there's some. I, I just don't know. I couldn't find anything else about that. But it, it, hey, if you know of a good reason to create a tomato tobacco hybrid, write in. Let us know. All right. Well, we, we've reached the point where we're going to have to uh, stop and uh, and come back in another episode to continue our exploration of the tomato. But but real quick, Joe, uh, fresh tomatoes are in your kitchen. What's what's one of the first dishes you, you think you'll, you you would uh, try to make? Like what's something that's popular right now in your household with tomatoes? Oh, answer to that is extremely easy. Um, toast with a little bit of mayonnaise with tomato on top, salt and pepper. I mean, unbeatable. Yeah, uh, like just tomato sandwich with mayonnaise is the most delicious thing if it's a good ripe summer tomato also just a good ripe summer tomato sliced with like olive oil salt and pepper maybe a bit of torn basil leaves i mean keep it simple a, a good ripe summer tomato is it's like a steak it's a dish unto itself yeah yeah I mean, that sounds great i mean that reminds me that one of the things we like to do here at our house is make a, a sort of blt we don't um, we don't eat bacon anymore but we uh, will we'll use um, like store-bought sausage like you get from like Morningstar or TJ's, mm -hmm. put that on there instead of bacon and with a really good tomato, it's fabulous. I'd actually been wondering about uh, trying to, to create a vegetarian version of a BLT. And some of the ideas I came across for the bacon substitute were like um, uh, sort of dried out charred strips of eggplant or smoked strips of mm -hmm. eggplant. Uh, but then also just the idea of using like smoked tempeh. That sounds good. That sounds good. All right. We're going we're gonna to close out then. But obviously, we want you to come back for the next episode on tomatoes. And in the meantime, you can certainly write in and give some feedback on the journey thus far. Uh, share uh, some insight based on your own experience with tomato growing, with tomato consumption. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. If you want to check out other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, you know where to find us. Absolutely anywhere you get your podcasts and wherever that happens to be, make sure you rate, review, and subscribe. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. 
Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's Rappaport's Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.